Our first scripture reading comes from Matthew 10, verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Second from Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Romans 13, 8. No, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is the word of God for the people of God. We are in our third week of reminding ourselves that as Christians, the best things in life are timeless. They are unlike your senior picture that kind of has gone out of style. And some of you uh, along these weeks have been gracious enough to post your senior picture. You've hashtagged at CCC Timeless. And uh, I wish we could go through them because they are phenomenal. But they're all posted on Facebook, so just go there, okay? And uh, hashtag, C- or, you know, search that hashtag CCC Timeless and you'll find them. They are, they are worth your time. Uh, but we live in a trendy world, right? We're not sure whether tank tops are back in or just a fad of the 70s. We're not sure whether skinny jeans are still in or whether they were ever in in the first place. We're not sure about that. We're not sure about the gadgets that we buy. Uh, All of us have bought something that years later found its way into a junk drawer just collecting dust. Tech trends, fashion trends, business trends, music trends, diet trends... The list goes on and on, all kinds of trends. There's certainly nothing wrong with them. Trends can be interesting. They can be helpful. But here's the thing. Most of them are replaced. Most of them have a shelf life. And in the trendy world that we live in, it's the timeless things in life that really matter. Things like humility and kindness and patience and courage and integrity. Those things are always in season. They always look good on whoever chooses to wear them. And so two weeks ago, we talked about connecting our eternal reality to our daily reality. Because as Christians, we're instructed that what we do or don't do here on the earth will in fact determine what kind of eternal rewards we get to participate in. And so it matters. Last week, we kind of built on that and we suggested this, that one of the most timeless God-honoring ways to worship God is actually to do what He asks us to do and put Him first with a tithe. And today we're going to spend a little time discussing again our relationship with our possessions and why the correct attitude towards our stuff makes all the difference in this world and also in the next one. And so today's timeless principle is easily one of the top 10 things uh, that have uh, changed my life, okay? And I would put it in the top five, but in the top five there's just not room. Because I'm a Christian, okay, and so that was life-changing event number one. And number two, I'm married, so that was life-changing event number two. And then we have two kids, but we had three, and so there's three, four, and five. And so there's no room in the top five. I should say this is probably top six. It is one of the best changes in my life I ever made. My family would tell you the same. It's hard to put into words how much this can impact your life and those around you and those you love if you will buy into it. And it comes out of that verse in Proverbs that was just read to us, Proverbs 20, 22, verse 7. And it's the second part. 
It simply says this, the borrower is slave to the lender. That's it. And the principle that we get to pull out of that is probably best worded by a guy named Dave Ramsey. If you don't know that name, uh, you need to know that name. But he says it this way, live like no one else so that later you can live like no one else. There it is. And that one little small idea has the power to completely revolutionize how you live and also how you give. It was two Thursdays ago. If you're calculating correctly, that will put you on Thursday of Thanksgiving. It'll put you on Thanksgiving Day. And on that day, I was along for the ride, but one of my family members had a plan. What they did was they picked out a 24-7 breakfast place that they knew would be open on Thanksgiving Day, and they planned for us on Thanksgiving morning to eat in that place, okay? And we would go, and we would eat the minimum possible because, after all, turkey and pumpkin pie are coming later in the day, right? So we went, and we ordered very little, and where we chose to go was the Waffle House. We were up in Kansas City. And we chose one of the waffle houses up there. Why did we choose that? Because if you are at work at the waffle house and it's Thanksgiving day and it's Thanksgiving day morning, then there's probably a reason why you're at work because you need to be there. There's no shame in that. It's just the way it is. You do what you have to do. And so we went with the plan of ordering very little, and this particular family member took along an amount of money that represented an exorbitant tip. And so we sat down, and a waitress named Amber found herself waiting on us. She was the perfect choice. She couldn't have been a better server. And at the end of the, uh, the waffle that two of us split, and a Diet Coke, and a coffee, and a water, and a toast with extra butter, our bill was 12 bucks. okay? And at the end of that, we left money for the bill on the table, and the family member added her tip underneath the money for the bill. And when I say a really good tip, I'm not really talking like 18 or 20%. I'm talking our bill was 12 bucks, and this was 1,600% of our bill. Math nerds, go, okay? You can figure it out. And as we're walking out, we leave the money on the table. We make eye contact with Amber. We said, you've been great. The money's on the table. Happy Thanksgiving. And then we beeline to our car because beforehand we had parked strategically so that we could see what was going on inside. And we sat in our vehicle. And sure enough, as we looked through the window, we could see Amber walking to the cash register. And she wasn't really aware of what she had in her hand. And when she got to the cash register, she peeled that first $20 bill off and exposed some larger bills underneath. And let's just say her reaction was worth giving the gift. We could tell it meant a lot. We don't know why. And someday, in eternity, in a timeless eternity, we will get to see exactly the difference that was made through that gift. Now, that picture is this principle. Live like no one else so that later you can live like no one else. That story, what we were able to do on Thanksgiving Day, is part of the later. Being able to give like that, nothing can duplicate that. Giving is the most fun you will ever have with money. The Huffington Post in 2015 ran an article, and 
one of the statements in it was this. When you make a donation to charity or when you give money away, your brain acts in the exact same way that it would if you were having sex or eating chocolate. In a study on charitable giving, when people donated to a worthy cause, the midbrain region of the brain lit up. And this, that's the area of the brain that's responsible for our cravings and for our pleasure center and pleasure rewards. And so there's absolutely a link between us giving and pleasure. And so here's the question. If it's true that giving money is what will bring us pleasure and joy and happiness, then it begs the question, you know the question, why don't we give more? Why don't we do that? And this verse in Proverbs tells us why. A verse like this in the Old Testament, whenever a verse like this pops up and uses the term slavery, the borrower is slave to the lender. There's a reason why that resonates in the Old Testament, because one of the major stories in the Old Testament is the story of God's people being in slavery. Maybe you might be familiar with it. It's in the book of Exodus. And God's people in the land of Egypt have been slaves for so long that the life of a slave had become normal to them. It was normal. They resisted against Uh, resisting against the shackles that were strapped to their wrist wasn't even a thought because they were pushing bricks 24-7, 365, and that was everyday life. That was normal for them. And it took an outside voice to come in, one that could see through the slavery, that could see beyond the slavery, to come in and awaken the Israelites to the fact that they were not slaves. You were never meant to be slaves, and God is this voice, and he uses a guy named Moses. He taps him on the shoulder, and he says, I want you to go into the land of Egypt, and I want you to rescue my people. And God, through Moses, orchestrates some very familiar catastrophes in the land of Egypt, and finally, the Israelites are set free from their slavery, and they escape from their Egyptian masters out into the desert. But being free from their Egyptian masters did not mean that they were automatically free from their own stupidity. They're not in Egypt anymore. Now they're in the desert where they suddenly find themselves free for the first time. And it was a way of life, this free thing that they had never known before. It was totally foreign to them. And so learning how to be free took some time. They spent 40 years wandering in the desert, learning what it meant to follow the God who rescued them. Forty years trying to rewrite patterns of life that had been ingrained for generations. And it was a struggle at every turn, but step by step by step by step, they moved forward until one day they found themselves truly free. They stepped into a land that God had promised them in the first place when they came out of Egypt. It was a promised land. And when they stepped into it, they were slaves to no one. They were absolutely free and they were given a land flowing with promise. Now, that's a 50,000 foot view of Israelite history that I want you to get today because it will give you some handles to grab onto when it comes to our own journeys financially. It could easily be said that we are on the same kind of path because generally speaking, most of us, when it comes to money, have been in slavery or we are in slavery. And God says there's a way out, there's an exodus, and maybe with enough right decisions and right patterns that we come to, finally, 
there might be one day a land of promise. So let's look at those three things when it comes to our finances. Number one, slavery. Slavery. Americans, I'll just make this statement and you will agree with it right, right away. Americans are in bondage financially. It does not take but a few minutes of light research to know that this is true. Americans, without much exception, are in absolute financial slavery. Americans owe $733 billion in credit card debt, and many people do not know what their interest rate is. $733 billion is almost four times more than the figure I threw out last week that if the church would just tithe, we could give $165 billion dollars to the church, and to the world, and it would revolutionize the world. 733 is almost four times more. And that's the amount we owe on credit card debt. The average student loan hovers at just under $29,000. The average car loan is more than $30,000 with a $509 payment per month. The average credit card balance is more than $15,000. Half of all Americans have less than one month of income saved for a rainy day. And guess what? It's going to rain. It will happen. But we don't save for it, and so when the rainy day comes, we have no choice but to fall back on the credit card debt, and that's why the credit card debt is so high. I'm speaking from experience. 42% of Americans have no retirement savings. The average American owes $171,000 on their home. The average payments are well over $1,000 a month. Now, all this debt does is eat away at our future possibility. It wrecks our peace of mind. It negatively affects our health and our relationships. When we have no margin in our finances due to debt, it ties us to jobs and to situations and places that we'd like to change, but we can't. We find opportunities that come our way that we would like to move on, but we can't because we're already obligated financially the other, in other areas. The number one cause for divorce in North America has been for a long time and will be for a long time money fights and money problems. That's why people are getting divorced. And just like the Israelites in Egypt, most of us consider that, that this financial picture that I just described is... Normal. It's really slavery, but we think it's normal. We're just so used to living this way. I mean, everybody else around me seems to be getting along okay, and so surely I will too. But normal is broke. Normal is financial bondage. And even our verse today indicates that slavery is seen as the norm, financial slavery. If you look at the Hebrew words in this little text that I, the borrower, slave to the lender, the Hebrew words are interesting. The word for borrower is plural, means there are a lot of them. Guess what the word for rich is? It's singular. There's only one of those guys. Doesn't that mirror life? Absolutely it does. For For the few people in our audience that might be in a position where they could lend, there are dozens and dozens and dozens more of us that are borrowers. Borrowing and incurring debt is normal. Also, I want you to consider verse 6. It's on your screen, I think. 
And verse 6 is a very familiar passage. We could have spent a week on our future fear, uh, family series just on this verse, but it says, train up the child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And then our verse that we're looking at is immediately follows. It says, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. Now, some commentators will say that there's a reason for verse 7 to fall right after verse 6, and it's not just because 7 comes after 6. There's actually a legitimate reason why the the writer put it there. It's because verse 7 is a warning. It's a warning for parents to pay attention to as they're raising and training up their kids. Why is it normal to be poor rather than rich? Why are there more of those than there are rich people? Why are there more borrowers instead of lenders? It's because the hint that we're given here is that parents have not taken the time to train up their children in the way they should go. And when we fail to teach our kids about money, they will always take the path of least resistance like we did, and that path is normally debt. Even the text implies that broke is normal. But the text isn't a rule, and that's the hope in it. It's just a warning. It's not a fixed reality implied in this little text, the borrower slave to the lender is God's voice coming from the outside and saying to us in our current financial state, that might be normal to you, but it shouldn't be. It doesn't have to be. There's a better way. There's a way out. There's a promised land. Let me lead you to it. And so he calls us to Exodus. Exodus is from two words. It simply means a way out. It's from ex, which means out and hodos, which means away. And so Exodus literally is a way out. It's having a plan. When God went to his people who were in slavery in Egypt, he had a strategy. He had a blueprint. He had a plan. He he tapped Moses on the shoulder. He said, Moses, I want you to take Aaron, and I want you to take your staff, and I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to say this, and I want you to do this. And there was a plan in place. And they were able to escape that slavery because of the plan. And getting you free from financial slavery will also take a plan. Financial freedom is possible with a blueprint. And that's what we want to give you today. When we start talking about money in this place, there's an understandable skepticism. We get it. Maybe you've been in a place where there was a lot of pressure about giving. Uh, You've seen maybe personalities here and there with uh, big hair and lots of hairspray, and they're, you know, pressuring, you know, by beating the money drum, um, and it all seems a bit shady to you. We get, we get that, okay? And it's probably very fair to say um, that you could all fill in this blank. I want to leave the blank empty on purpose, because this is kind of the prevailing attitude in our culture. The church just wants my money. Yeah, you got it. You've been to that church, right? you know what we're talking about. And so we understand the thin ice we're skating on here. When we say there's a way out, the pushback is that, oh, you're just after my money. And the prevailing attitude people have towards churches and nonprofits in general is they're just after my money. Today, let's change that. Because what you see in this place, this is us 
every week, getting together, trying to do good in the world and in your life. There's a reason that we go to all the trouble we do and exert this kind of energy on a weekly basis. Because here's what we believe with every synapse in our brain, that in the person of Jesus, there is life. That's what we believe. He has something to offer every person on the planet. He's the solution for whatever pit that you're in. He's the thing that will help. He will make a difference in your home and in your job and in your school and in your marriage, in your friendships, in your dating, even in that hobby, that weird hobby that your wife is like on you about constantly. Even in that, Jesus will make a difference. There's a difference in him, not just for today, but for all of eternity. And the church is the place that wants to help you, even with your finances, because we want you to live the best abundant life that you can, and that is found in Jesus and following Him. But often, the church is the entity that is, you're told that you can't trust. And I can't do much about all the guys who wear hairspray on TV. <laughs> but in this place, in this place, we can change the script. And so what we want for you in this place is this community wants something for you. We want to tell you there's a way out of where you are. The way out is pretty simple, and I'm going to leave on, lean on Dave Ramsey again. He just says it this way, act your wage. Act your wage. Years before Dave Ramsey ever came along, John Wesley put it this way. He was kind of famous and a, an important character in Christian history. He was very practical, very wise. He said this, Get all you can without hurting your soul, your body, or your neighbor. Save all you can, cutting off every needless expense. Give all you can. Be glad to give and ready to distribute, laying up in store for yourselves a good foundation against the time to come that you may attain eternal life. And we can distill his words down into a very simple, very effective plan. The plan is this. Earn all you can. Give all you can, save all you can. And we could even hone that down into a little more specific formula in this. Give 10%, save 10%, live on the rest. Wesley became a champion of that formula. Give 10, save 10, live on the rest. He said, as a matter of fact, that if you would go one step further... If you would give 10 and save 20% and live on the rest, then he made a really bold statement. He said, you would never have a problem in life. And if you've ever been successful at saving even a little bit of money, you know from experience that Murphy seems to stay out of your life if you have money saved. The refrigerator just doesn't break if you have money in the bank to replace it if it does. But if you don't have money in the bank... Oh, Murphy's knocking at your door all the time. It's just the way it works. He's pretty cruel to you if you don't save. Now, that plan is a lifelong plan. It doesn't happen overnight. It's time here for marathon training. And that's where the church is here to help you. We want something for you. It's our job, as I alluded to last week, to do everything we can do to keep people from tripping up in their faith. It, and this is our attempt to remove obstacles that are in the way of you operating freely. And so this is the church offering to help. 
by giving you a program, giving you a strategy and a way out of your financial slavery. And it's called specifically Financial Peace University, and it is run by Dave Ramsey. We have run it here at our church over the years many, many times. There are lots and lots of families who have gone through it, and every one of them would say, I learned so much, and I was helped, and I took that next step. I took that next step, and one day the promised land is going to be mine. I want you to watch just a minute-long commercial for FPU. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. Are you really going to make the hard choices to change your life? We had 40000 in student loans, 17000 in cars. I owned a rental property. You had a line of credit, just stuff. You had 16 credit cards. The proverb says... Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when desire comes... We paid off $83,000. Wow! When desire comes... $144,000. When desire comes... $450,000 in the last seven years. Wow! It is the tree of life. God says this is how you get out of debt. You gotta run! 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 There is no doubt that this process called Financial Peace University works. The only question is whether you're going to be involved. And so if you haven't signed up yet, now is the time. We're going to run Financial Peace University in January. And that means throughout the month of December, you'll have the opportunity to sign up for Financial Peace University. And uh, there will be, there's info in your bulletin, I think, today. If not, there will be in the coming weeks. There will actually be somebody in the coffee area taking sign-ups. We already have a good group already signed up. Uh, maybe 10 or 12 people in the class already, and um, the more the merrier. That's going to be a great thing. So get into FPU. Maybe FPU isn't your thing. Maybe it doesn't fit in with your calendar. That's fine. Here's your step. Get with somebody in the room that you know is doing okay. Because there are lots of other people in this room that have been through Financial Peace University. They have succeeded with money and they don't have any debt at all. Or maybe they have no debt except the house payment, which is also another abnormal place to be in our society. And if you're in that boat, we want to ask you to use your expertise and your experience as a ministry. Would you leverage yourself so that you can help others who will help others Later, And the goal is for everybody in the room to take one step, a step at a time, towards financial freedom. Because slavery doesn't have to be true of any of us any longer. Just take one step. And here's my warning to you. When you finally get up off the couch and the financial slavery and you, you undo those chains from your wrist and you step out into the desert, you will find it hard. You will want, just like the Israel's, Israelites wanted, they wanted to go back to slavery. They shook their fist at Moses. Why'd you bring us out here? We want to go back. It was easier in Egypt than it is out here. And you will experience that when you take those steps to try to work your way out of debt. I promise you. But if you just keep going forward one day, you will find yourself in the promised land. And the promised land looks like this. It looks like Romans chapter 13, verse 8, where Paul says to Christians, don't owe anyone anything 
except to love them like Jesus loved us. And so the promised land is when we can say, I don't owe anyone anything except love. There's no credit card debts. There's no payments. I own my car. You own your boat. You own your labradoodle because those are pretty expensive, right? You own your house. And the minute you pay off that final payment for your house, the grass is a little greener in the backyard. It just is. And the best part of not owing anyone anything means that you'll be able to give like no one else. Do you remember the plan? The plan was earn all you can, save all you can, so that you can give all you can. I need to tell you the reason that our little family outing to Waffle House was possible. Because it's not like I'm some guru with this and we have, you know, lots of big bills to throw around. I hinted earlier that we have two kids, but we've had three. Alex was born in 2003. He lived 11 days. And the Christmases that came after that were pretty hard because we recognized that there should be another pile of gifts under the tree. And so a few Christmases after that, we, we realized as a family, you know, there should be some gifts there. Why don't we just make them be there? Why don't, why don't we do that? And so we came up with this idea, a tradition we call Alex's Blessing. And what I do is I take an amount of money that would have represented the Christmas gifts for Alex, and I divide that money up between the four of us, and I divide that so that each of us gets an equal amount of cash. And our task with that money for the whole next year is to just give it away. Find a need, meet it. It doesn't matter. Give it away and honor Alex with our giving. And so each of us keeps this cash accessible where we can get to it. And when we feel led to give it away, we give it away. Or we come up with some Waffle House kind of plan to give it away. And then the following Christmas, before I hand out the next year's Alex's blessing, we go around and we share what we did with our money and how we gave it away. And it's been so fun. And this year, there will be a story of Amber at the Waffle House. And I tell you that for a couple of reasons. First, is this. You don't have to be in the promised land before you can give. You can and should right now have a blast giving. It's just that later will be bigger if you stick to the plan of leaving financial slavery. Second reason I tell you that is because if it's our job here at the church to take obstacles out of your path, then it's also our job to provide you opportunities that will actually lead to life. And so what we want to offer you is a concrete way to experience this joy of giving. This time of year, as we gather as a church family, what we usually ask is for you to participate in a Christmas offering. And the Christmas offering usually goes this way, that, hey, we need some piece of equipment, or we want to improve our facility in some way, or we want to give to this mission that has a special need, and so would you, you know, give that as part of your Christmas offering. This year, as we were contemplating what to do, I threw out this idea of what we do as a family, our Alex Blessing idea. And I asked this, what would it look like if our whole church did that? And so that's what we want to invite you to do. That will be our Christmas offering this year. We're calling it the Alex Project. You can call it whatever you want in your family. Honor somebody that you want to honor. 
But just around here, so that we know what we're talking about, we're going to call it the Alex Project, and it will be our Christmas offering this year. And there are four things that we're going to ask you to do. Number one, decide on an amount of money to give. Small, large, that's up to you. doesn't matter. And set it aside for the project. Number two, divide that money into equal parts and give it as a cash gift to each person in your family. Now, you are the one that gets to decide what family means. Some of you have kids and their kids and their kids. You know, I don't know how deep your family goes. You decide that. But however it, however it works out, divide that money into equal parts. Give it to each person in your family. Number three, direct them as to what to do with this gift. Tell them, I'm giving you the gift of giving. What I want you to do is take this money and I want you to find a need somewhere in your life, your friends or maybe people you work with, or maybe people you just stumble into, find a need and give it away. Come up with some creative way to give it away. Find a need and meet it with this money. And then number four, dialogue about what you did. Dialogue about what you did. Share with one another about how you gave the money away, but we also want you to share with us here at the church how you gave that money away. And so we're going to collect stories. The window is going to be until the end of March. And we're going to give you that window of time to find some way to give money away. And we're going to collect stories from you. And then sometime down the road, we'll have a morning service where we just share about what we did with the Alex Project money and how we were able to help other people by giving money away. And here's my promise. It will be some of the most fun you'll ever have with money. I know that some some people in here are feeling, you know, we talked last week about tithing. We're talking this week about uh, checkbooks and how we manage money and all that kind of stuff. And and some of you, uh, you know, you're feeling tremendous amount of guilt right now. That's a very possible reality for a lot of us. And so here's the way we need to close today. We need to remind ourselves of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul says, There is therefore now, what? No, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right now, it's possible that your heart, your past, your mistakes with money are pointing at you. They're prodding you in the side and they're saying, Oh, you fool. You've made so many mistakes. You're in so deep you can't get out. You're so much a failure. You'll never make it to the promised land. And I want to repeat to you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. If you are in Him, none. And here's why. Because Jesus was condemned for you. What He did was He had all of the wealth of heaven at His disposal. He was rich, but He became poor on our behalf. He was born in a feed trough. He was raised in a poor family. He said to His followers... Foxes have holes, birds have nests, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Think about that. This is the person who created every physical thing that you can ever imagine and see and touch. And he said, I have nowhere to sleep tonight. At the end of his life, he rode into town on a borrowed donkey. He ate his last meal in a borrowed room. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Do you sense a pattern? He was a borrower. He went into debt for us. The only possession he had at the end of his life they cast lots for, it was his robe. 
And every one of us know down deep that we could have done more. Why did I buy that sweater? Ah, why did I go for that latest gadget? Why did I pay $19.99 for three of those plastic things they were advertising on Channel 4? Why did I do that? That money could have been used for such a good purpose. I could have helped somebody else. I could have done more. We all could have done more. But Jesus couldn't have done more. He did everything. He did it all. He filled the gap between what we did and what we should have done. And because of that, there's no condemnation for you and there's no condemnation for me. And if there's no condemnation for us, then we cannot be moved by guilt or shame. And if that's the reason that you're going to give, you should not give. When we know that he did everything for us, that he couldn't have done more, we have a new motive. And every, uh, every so often, I would say every morning, we have to get up and we have to remember and we have to look at what he did for us, that he gave everything, that he died on a cross. He became the curse for us so that our debt would be paid. And when we see the Prince of Heaven willingly become a pauper on the earth and give himself for us, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go out these doors and we're never going to see poor people the same way again. We're never going to see ourselves the same way again. And the love of Christ will push us outside and it will cause us to treat other people in the same way that Jesus has treated us. And the world will watch that and they will watch us give at the Waffle House and they will say, wow, where'd that come from? Why are they doing that? And that kind of living will last because it's timeless. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the life you call us to matters. And it affects every corner of our life, even our wallets, even our checkbooks. And it calls us to abundant, joyful living. So, Father, would you, would you help us to take that step that we need to take today? That one step towards the promised land that you call us to, where we don't owe anyone anything except love. And we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we can say we are truly free people because he's paid the debt that we could never pay. May we walk out of here encouraged because of what he has done. And it's in his great, wonderful name that we pray.